You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. This is the Deepening Your Practice series. It's February 25th, 2021. It is... 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, we've been uh, working through a compassion cycle. And tonight, we're going to practice compassion for friends and family. So um, in the way that this uh, is taught, uh, it's slightly different than uh, maybe a traditional practice would be. I teach along the lines uh, uh, that Mahasi Indika, sorry, uh, uh, Indika Sadao teaches, um, and uh, he uses slightly different categories for Western students than the traditional categories. Um, uh, self, teachers, mentors, benefactors, uh, friends and family, neutral people, difficult people and all sentient beings are the traditional categories. And he talks about easy people, uh, self, close people, friends and family, neutral people, difficult people, and all sentient beings. Um, the easy category really corresponds to the teachers, benefactors, and meta, uh, benefactors category. Um, he, he found in, in the West that we don't uh, value teachers, mentors, and benefactors uh, in, in, in the way that it would be easy for them to uh, generate this uh, idea of compassion. And so he preferred to use easy people. What's interesting about exploring uh, the category of easy people is that you think of them and bring to um, uh, think of them in relationship to the mind state of compassion and see who is easier for you to do that for and who, who isn't. And it's often surprising who falls into that category. And then self, um, in Asia, they typically start with self. Uh, and part of that is to diff, uh, individuate the self as separate from the family group. Uh, the organization uh, in um, Asia is still primarily around identification with the family and not as the individual and in the West, we tend to be more oriented around the individual already. Uh, and it, it can be alienating or further isolating to imagine the self as uh, separate and because we don't need to pull the self out of the uh, family identification. Um, and then close people, this is really the, the inner circle, the people that are closest to you. Uh, in Asia, he commented that uh, in uh, their society, the family group is the, the close group, but in the West, we don't necessarily identify the family as the close group. We may or may not include uh, family members in, in the close group. And so uh, we then come to the category of friends and family. So we would be talking about uh, friends and family members who are not in our inner circle. If you talk about this in terms of Dunbar numbers, uh, we're talking about the C group. So 
A's and B's are the people that are closest to you and above the line, which means you tell them everything. And C and D people are people who are below the lines that you, you, sit, you tell some things to. What we're really talking about is the experience of the present moment. And I'd say things that you tell everything to or some things to. I sometimes like to talk about that in terms of Grice's maxims. Um, you may know Grice's maxims. He was a philosopher uh, at the University of California at Berkeley and his area of study was the communication between human beings and how that laid out. And he devised four axions or uh, a means of in which if conversations fall within those boundaries, we have a sense uh, that there's uh, um, moral justice and if they fall outside those boundaries, we tend to get outraged by the, the violations of uh, uh, ethics. The first one is quality, the second one is quantity, the third one is manner, and the fourth one is relevancy. In quantity, what we're, we're talking about is that you're communicating truthfully and that your communication is complete and concise. Uh, in quantity, we're talking about uh, how it's languaged. Uh, is it clear? Is it uh, well-organized? Is it uh, not too short, not too long? Manner <coughs> is whether or not the organization of the structure of the communication is easy to comprehend <coughs> and um, that you match the energy level of the person that you're communicating with. And the fourth one is relevancy, that you're sticking to the topic that's being discussed in the conversation and you're not uh, going off or changing the topic to other things. So in A and B relationships, all of those things would be there, that you would be communicating truthfully and completely about what your experience of the present moment was. But when we get to below the line, there's a, an allowance for including some things and not including other things. Uh, you want to be able to express to the other person what you feel safe in expressing, but not uh, feel an obligation to express everything or beyond the level that you feel safe. So it's interesting that uh, while it's um, fairly straightforward with friends that you may or may not be close enough to somebody that you would be completely open with them, but with family members, it's a different thing. Um, ironically, or maybe uh, sadly, um, oftentimes people keep uh, family members in the D group. One of the ways to understand that is, A, people you see on a daily or every other day basis, a B, people you see weekly or every other week, and a C, people you see monthly or quarterly, and D, people you see once a year. So in regarding our families uh, of origin, um, how do you keep them? Are they uh, people that you see regularly and tell everything to? Are they people that you restrict in some way? 
And if you do, why do you do that? Um, so it's going to be some um, some dimension of the um, maxims being violated in some way. We're very uh, um, moral creatures, human beings. And we have a sense of moral outrage when our uh, the people that are in our lives don't uh, manage the relationships in a way that corresponds to that. So one of the things that's useful in terms of uh, understanding it in that way is that you can begin to have a way of investigating exactly what's happening that's creating conflict in the relationship. And then you, you may be able to uh, mitigate it in some way. Uh, because this is meditation and attachment, it's useful to talk about how attachment uh, manifests in that way. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was becoming uh, progressively more outraged with their, the way that they were communicating to me. And they were uh, 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 violating uh, quantity and uh, um, um, relativeness. Um, I would ask them questions and they would answer a different question. And, that is to say, they would provide an answer to a question that I asked them, which was not what I asked them. So they were changing the subject in the process of answering. Uh, and as it repeated over and over again throughout the conversation, uh, it became uh, troubling. And then um, the quantity violation was one of not ever finishing. So they just kept talking and talking. And at all of the points where normally uh, there would be a break and an opening for me to then contribute my part of the conversation. It wasn't uh, uh, included. So they would go from one idea to the next, to the next, to the next without leaving space for me to uh, express my uh, response to that. So um, <clears throat> with people that you can be uh, open to completely about what's happening with you and feel a sense of safeness and a sense of being seen, um, those uh, actions would typically be intact. And then with people uh, that you don't have that, it naturally creates this um, uh, distance from them. The reason I point that out is that people respond uh, because of their conditioning. And so, uh, most of the time it's unconscious, but if people are interested in uh, maintaining a relationship with you or, or actually getting closer to you, it can be useful to have a dialogue about it. Because people, people can be responsive to what your, your needs might be. So in Dunbar, uh, his research, if you don't know this, I, I talk about him a lot, so maybe you've heard this before, but um, he was researching um, uh, initially the neurobiology of facial recognition in humans to see what the, the number of faces is that you could recognize. Um, and if that had an effect on how our society is structured. And what he discovered was that uh, there's a, a buffer in the mind which is uh, involved in active facial recognition and it has about uh, a capacity of 150. 
That doesn't mean you can't remember more than that number of faces. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of media uh, uh, that uh, is a different actual form of um, memory. It's two-dimensional imagery uh, is a different kind of memory than active facial recognition of somebody who's in front of you. Um, facial recognition is an extremely intense uh, um, activity which uses a lot of resources in order to be able to do actively with the person in front of you, which is different than recognizing visual images. Um, but what he found was there's this active buffer of 150 and then uh, there's long-term memory and that you can shuffle uh, people in and out of it. Maybe you've had the experience of uh, somebody recognizing you and talking to you and you not really recognizing them. And then a few minutes later, you actually do remember them, recognize them. And that's this process of moving uh, facial recognition from long-term memory into, into the buffer and at the same time uh, displacing one of the faces that's in there. So A's about one, most people who have A's, A's are very intensive. Um, in an A relationship, the main way that it differs from a B relationship is that in an A relationship, you set aside uh, your exploration as the paramount need and you put the needs of the relationship in, in that spot. And so that is to say, you would not make a decision involving your exploration uh, that would affect the relationship without first clearing it with your partner. Whereas in a B relationship, your exploration stays as the primary and you would be free to make decisions about what you were going to do without necessarily clearing it with your B group. Is that making sense? C group is different than that. And what he found in his research, so A, most people have one A if they want it, many people don't. Uh, Bs, two to five, and then in the C group, 30 to 40. So in adults who are actively engaged in the world, 30 to 40 people in the C group is what most people have. And then the D group rounds out the remaining, say, 110 relationships or so. So if you're thinking about your uh, social network, um, that uh, corresponds to the happiest people. And so you may begin to understand uh, what you need to do in order to um, fill that out if you want to. <clears throat> compassion, co, in English, compassion means co, to share, and uh, passion means feeling. And so when we talk about the practice of uh, compassion, uh, we're talking about the willingness to share the emotional experience of someone else. Uh, and this is empathy. But in addition to that, it's the willingness to bring our capacity to emotionally regulate the experience of someone else. And in that way, act as a co-regulator for that, to hold the uh, all feeling really in, in a Western uh, definition of compassion, but in an Eastern definition, in a Buddhist definition of compassion, it's narrowly focused around the suffering experience of someone else. So we open to the suffering experience of someone else 
create a compassionate container for that and to help them to emotionally regulate. While it makes sense to do that with the people that are closest to you, then we move outward to this uh, larger group of people, 30 or 40 people, if the dance card is full. Um, <clears throat> how do you imagine holding this suffering experience of such a, a large number of people? And so this is a, a, an understanding of the nature of compassion itself, that they need to be in front of you. You need to be able to empathetically connect to them and hold the experience of them. And at the same time, being mindful that the suffering experience of someone else doesn't overwhelm you. So that rather than being somebody who can emotionally regulate the other person, you become dysregulated by the experience of holding their suffering which case it would be better to uh, move into a sympathetic response so that you could come into a place where you re-regulate yourself and then open again to the empathetic experience so that would require an understanding of the difference between the sympathetic experience, which is largely internal and of yourself and an empathetic experience, which is the awareness of the uh, experience of the other person. Empathy we talk about in three different uh, stages, or at least I like to talk about it in that way. The first is the visceral response to somebody else's uh, physical or emotional pain. So witnessing someone else's physical or emotional pain, you have a sense um, of that and you can feel it in your body. Oops, sorry, getting ahead of myself. So that's a whinginess that happens um, when you witness that pain, somebody cuts their finger while they're chopping vegetables and you kind of respond to that, or uh, you see a car accident or something like that. The second level is where you're able to look at the person's external presentation, their face, their body language, and interpret that uh, to mean a, a representation of what their internal experience is. Uh, and then the third one is the compassionate empathy in what we call in Buddhism, where you actually have a felt sense of the other person's experience in the body. Um, this, this, this is different depending on what your attachment conditioning is. Secure people, of course, are able to mentalize this pretty much right out of the box with no intervention. Uh, dismissing people really completely suppress or mostly suppress awareness of their emotional experience and because empathy is an emotional experience they're not compassionate uh, they're not empathetic because they don't have the data uh, available to them sometimes uh, so that's the third level they typically don't have sometimes they're very astute in, in decoding the second level so they're good at reading the external presentation of other people, but they're not particularly good at feeling it. And sometimes they don't have that. If they don't have the first level of empathy, that visceral response of the people's pain, we typically think of them as sociopathic. And then, Christian? Um, with dismissing people, I, I read something that they're not like, so they're not aware of their own internal state um, but if they're distressed, they, you know, 
you wouldn't know it looking at them, but actually like if they measure it, they're actually quite distressed. Um, so could that be true with empathy too, where they're actually feeling it, but they're not aware of it. So they're like, maybe they, yeah. Could that be true or is that more for, for distressing feelings? No, I think that it isn't that the, the empathy uh, mechanism is, is absent. It's that they're not aware of it. Okay. Consciously. And it's true in the research uh, with uh, children, so that would be anxious avoidant as a child. When they put EEGs on them, those kids are the most distressed on the machine, but there's no external presentation of it and the child themselves are not aware of it. One of the reasons why uh, uh, that's such a painful place to be is most of us use the awareness of being emotionally upset as a cue to begin a process of regulating our emotions or seeking comfort from somebody else to regulate us because, because they don't have a conscious experience of it. They don't do anything to regulate themselves. And so they tend to be in a much more dysregulated state, even though they're not conscious of it and they don't express it uh, outwardly um, in a coherent way. They can be explosively angry, um, but not really understand the intensity of the anger because they don't have an awareness of, of what the underlying emotional uh, condition is. Um, <clears throat> they don't, they might uh, take actions which you might attribute to uh, an emotionally driven action, but they wouldn't know that there was an emotional component to the action that they were taking. They would have a cognitive explanation for it. Um, George, can I ask a question? Sure. Um, so when you say they're not aware of it, do you mean that, so if they're distressed or feeling empathy or any sort of emotion, but they're not aware of it, like what are they, feeling at the moment like what you they're like it doesn't, doesn't feel really they're thinking they're thinking so they're not feeling anything right conscious okay. but would they then rash is it possible for them to say that they do feel empathy when they don't they're not conscious of it right they don't have the information that is useful to them in examining their actions in the world. But they could rationally deduce that they have empathy even though they don't have conscious awareness of it, right? Typically they don't have the felt sense, the third level of empathy. They, many uh, skillful uh, dismissing people have the second level. And some some of them are really good at it. They can read you like a book, but it's sorry. What's the second level again? The external presentation of uh, body language and facial expressions. But you can you can test that pretty easily. If you still your face and you don't tell them in words what you're feeling, they can't tell you. They don't. Know, they're blind to it. And if they're not good at the second level in relationships, the dismissing people is what you'll find is 
they're constantly quizzing you about what you're feeling because they can't detect it themselves. So in those relationships, you'll find uh, that you're, you're constantly having to provide the information to them uh, and that you, if you withhold it, they become quite distressed because they can't detect it otherwise. Okay, thank you. Um, understand the cause of that in children that become dismissing, they become dismissing because they're neglected. Um, we all start as autoregulators and then as the brain develops and we're able to recognize that people come and take care of us, we become focused on the person who comes to take care of us. So we become external regulators. If the person comes consistently enough that we can rely on them and feel secure, then we, began, we begin a process of learning collaborative relationships, collaboratively regulating our experience. And then as the, the uh, capacity of the mind develops over time, we recognize that we're separate and that they have an agenda and that we have an agenda and both agendas can be worked on collaboratively in the relationship. But if at any point along the way that that doesn't happen, then we don't move beyond the stage that we're in. And dismissing people tend to be autoregulators because they're, um, nobody ever comes to take care of them. So you can imagine in saying that, uh, the distressing state for the, the child that no one comes to take care of. And so the only way that they really can manage that is by suppressing awareness of their emotions. And in suppressing awareness of their emotions, they suppress the empathetic experience of other people. And in suppressing that, they don't have the information feed that comes from other people. So when they construct a system for being and operating in the world, it doesn't include data about other people. So it becomes a very internalized and self-organized way of being in the world, mainly because they don't get information uh, and so it doesn't make sense to use energy to try and gather the information in that way. Is that making sense? Preoccupied people, on the other hand, are very oriented toward the mind states of other people. Uh, that comes from a childhood where the parent or parents uh, uh, behave in such a way that the child needs to be attentive to the mind state of the parent and needs to in some way involve themselves in the management of the mind states of the other uh, person, which is a hyper alert status, uh, which means that they never actually relax into the experience of safety, that they would be able to engage in uh, a collaborative experience. So we have the, these three main mechanisms, the, Attachment mechanism, which when it goes off, creates a sense of fear, which causes you to withdraw to the, uh, the, the safe person who will protect you. But it disengages the uh, exploration mechanism so that you can withdraw from the exploration and pursue uh, the safe uh, figure. You need to get the attachment mechanism to shut off in order to activate exploration mechanism. And so in preoccupied uh, children, because for uh, 
anxious, ambivalent children, they never feel safe enough that the attachment mechanism goes off, so they don't have the, the impetus to learn to explore. The collaborative method mechanism is separate from that, and it can uh, stay online. So what happens in the experience of compassion uh, for preoccupied people is they get so involved in the mind state of the other person that the, the empathetic experience becomes the dominant emotional experience and the, the person's own emotional experience becomes the secondary experience. And so we need uh, to have that uh, figure ground reversal where in the preoccupied person, their own emotional state is the dominant experience and the, the experience of the other is secondary. And why this is important in the discussion of compassion is because if the um, emotional experience of the other person becomes the dominant emotional experience, you don't have regulation skills. Uh, you can't hold yourself, understand what your own emotions are and regulate your own emotions so that you can help the other person regulate. You have to be engaged in regulating the mind state of the other person which means your own emotional states are not attended to. So you can become easily dysregulated by attempting to regulate the other person, but not attending to your own emotional states. Is that making sense? In the compassionate exchange, you attune to the other person. So you place your attention on them, they place their attention on you. You open an empathetic exchange and create a container where through the emotional regulation skills that you have of your own experience and then of the empathetic experience, you can, and in this empathetic exchange back and forth, uh, you can send the experience of the other person's emotions back to them in a more regulated form. But you can only do that if your own emotional uh, uh, states are well regulated. If you're not attending to your own emotional states, they tend to become dysregulated. And then you're engaged in a kind of pseudo empathy rather than a genuine empathy. And that doesn't, uh, that doesn't allow for you know, this uh, classical sense of compassion. Christian? When you say you send it back to them in a more regulated form, is this by some action you're taking, or is this by simply attuning to their uh, emotional? It's just the, the process of empathy, the natural exchange of information. You're sending out your information to them. They're able to pick it up. They're sending their information out to you and you're able to pick it up. And that it's a constant back and forth, a constant exchange. So they're picking up the changes in your face, your emotional response to what they're doing and and that's sort There's of a felt sense in the body. So you can feel the suffering experience of the other person in your body. You can bring your emotional regulation skills to it. And then when it's transmitted back, they pick it up in a more regulated form. It's all unconscious and all automatic. Sympathy would be an expression. Empathy is an exchange that's automatic and unconscious. 
um, if you're developing the capacity for empathy uh, and the, the capacity for compassion that comes from that, then you need to develop the emotional clarity. This is my experience of the present moment. This is the self-generated experience. This is the experience of empathy and, and then also the experience of the somaticized emotion. Those four would be enough. And if in somewhere along the way, uh, any of those uh, capacities or skills were underdeveloped, you can begin to develop them. So you can do this. The greater your capacity to emotionally regulate yourself in relationship to somebody else's suffering, the greater the capacity for compassion you have. As soon as you reach the, reach the point where the intensity of someone else's suffering dysregulates you, then you're no longer able to provide a compassionate response. And it's better to disconnect. Stas? So what if you're engaged with someone and they're empathetically, you know, I'll feel like a very intense emotional experience that, you know, I'm just going about my day in the moment I disengage, everything just drops, but it's overwhelming to me. I mean, do I just not engage that? Not quite understanding. Mm, I'm saying like, if I'm in, interacting with someone and they're like, I'm feeling fine. And once the interaction starts, like empathetically, I feel like it's very strong emotion right. that there's, you know, I'm not experiencing personally. Right. And so then, good you know, clarity I, I, there. I disengage, it goes away immediately. Right. Um, so is the compassion practice to take that on and, and to regulate? Hold, <laughs> to hold the space of it and help the other person to come back into balance. So what you're describing is the the, the Basically, the conditioned non-compassionate response, which is where you experience the suffering of someone else and you disengage from it, um, because we all turn away from pain uh, and toward pleasure. So this would be the willingness to hold the suffering experience of the other person and to help them come back into balance. Monitoring, of course, that you aren't being dysregulated by it to the point that you can no longer do that. So in the, in the friend group or in the family group that are not A's or B's, there is some value in doing that because you have this social group around you that, that uh, supports you. Disorganized people have a, a um, depending on what part of the disorganization um, spectrum they're on, have uh, different responses, but mainly uh, the difficulty for them is that uh, they're being seen and to be seen uh, by somebody else uh, feels dangerous. And so there's often a, a disinclination to allow an actual um, compassionate exchange and that's particularly true of the fearful avoidant people. Fearfully preoccupied people often 
have such an uh, chaotic internal life because they don't regulate themselves and they're so focused on other people that they're not really capable of, of compassion in that, in that sense of being uh, able to hold the suffering experience of someone else. One of the things that's uh, important to understand about uh, this in relationship to exploration is that in order to be able to explore uh, freely, you have to have this, uh, this uh, secure base to come back to so that if you get really emotionally dysregulated by the experience of your exploration, you know that you have reliable people that you can come back to and that they'll help you emotionally regulate. If you don't have that, what begins to happen over time is that you begin to restrict your exploration so that it doesn't dysregulate you to the point where you can't come back into regulation. If you have to self-regulate or auto-regulate in order to come back, it's a very inefficient system uh, and it does have a tendency to really uh, limit the risk-taking that you're willing to do in your exploration, which often translates into a lack of meaningfulness. Um, and so uh, you, you come into a place of, of uh, finding uh, life not as meaningful as you might like it or, or empty, and then uh, it can, uh, you can actually restrict your exploration to the point where you have the experience of despair at, at the life that you're living. Um, and and it, it, I think it, it, uh, to understand that uh, the advantage that you have in developing a, a, a tremendous capacity for compassion is that you're then able to provide this service to the people around you, to really hold space for them so that they can explore deeply and hopefully in this process of exchange, understanding who around you has a capacity for compassion so that you can rely on them to support your exploration. And one of the things that I think would be very useful in, in your A and B group is that people in that group have a tremendous capacity for compassion, but everything is impermanent. And so as your A and B groups change, you're looking to this C group for people to replace the A's and B's. And so this is one of the things that's very useful to know about people so that if you're planning to uh, take one of them on as an A or a B, uh, you can get somebody who has a tremendous capacity for compassion so that you have this uh, resource available to you because it will foster your capacity to explore. The more uh, reliable people are in terms of holding space for you, uh, the, greater, uh, the greater your freedom is in exploring because you can get totally discombobulated and just come back and then they can help you come back into balance and then hopefully encourage you to go back out. If you are in relationship to somebody and they keep coming back to you in a dysregulated state that in holding that dysregulated state causes you to be dysregulated, then what often happens is you begin to undermine their exploration. They don't do that anymore. 
well, some of that might be durable in a relationship after a while, uh, it causes a, uh, a rupture in the relationship. You want to really have people that are supporting and encouraging that people who are uh, controlling and limiting for their own purposes. Is that good enough as an explanation for this? Uh, so now we're going to do some practice. Um, this is a metta or a um, Karuna Jhana practice. So we're attempting to come into high concentration state. Jacqueline? I have a question. Um, if you are this kind of person who um, doesn't regulate because you were I forget, can you tell me again the two labels, the one that reaches out and the one that's extrovert and introvert, or what were the terms? I apologize. And preoccupied? Yeah. So I feel like you can easily get a preoccupied person and a dismissive person, you know, that would be beating off of each other. Popular coupling. And so I feel like when you do try to change your situation and you're trying to um, seek out other, you know, see, from your C category to bring them into your A, that you're going to go back to looking for that opposite because that's what brings you comfort. So if you're trying to change, you know, so that you're not becoming codependent with somebody are, are there meditation practices or are there things you can do? Because I find it difficult. I, you know, I'm, I'm the one that always am preoccupied and I find myself always finding people that it's hard to find people that are just purely <laughs> compassionate because <laughs> I'm always seeking, you know, that, that same situation over and over again. So if you're available, we have a level two class that's starting in March. That would probably be the best place to start. So um, learning uh, attachment, and then we teach the three pillars approach to repair. So ideal parent figure is one, the mentalizing stuff that I often talk about in here is two, and then uh, uh, collaborative relationship skills. I'm doing a day long on Saturday on, on collaborative relationship skills. Um, so you get the, the uh, psychoeducation piece that understands the lay of the land and then you begin the skills training of mentalizing and then and do the reparenting work or the remapping work of ideal parent figure totally doable thank you all right so go ahead and take your meditation postures So thank you all for coming. Um, Saturday, I'm teaching a class called uh, Meditation and Attachment for Relationships, which is a, uh, a class on uh, collaborative relationship skills for secure functioning. Uh, it's open to couples and also to uh, single people. We'll talk about uh, how secure relationships function, and then uh, do some dyad work and so on. If you come with a, a partner, you can work with your partner. And if you come as a single person, uh, you'll be paired up uh, during uh, the day long with 
different people to work with. Um, in uh, March, we're starting a level two intensive. This is a six month long course on uh, attachment uh, and meditation. So attachment uh, repair through meditation-based skills. Uh, it has uh, all three of the three pillars approach, uh, the training in the ideal parent figure protocol, the developing of mentalizing skills, and also the psychoeducation around uh, collaborative relationships. We do have some scholarships available for that, and it's available to take uh, with or without mentoring sessions. Um, in April, I'm doing a weekend retreat uh, called Meditation and Addiction, which is uh, a meditation-based um, uh, class on how to deal with relapse prevention from addictive strategies. We cover both uh, substance and process addictions, and uh, it's both a abstinence-only and harm reduction program. Uh, and there's a strong emphasis on attachment since we think the underlying cause of addiction is an attachment disturbance. In June, uh, we have a, um, a retreat coming up. All of those things are up on the website. So take a look at those if you're interested in some of them. We do have scholarships available also for the retreat. I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the poly word for generosity. So I offer the teaching freely, but at the same time, hope that you'll support us um, by making a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. There's a link to make a donation on the website and also uh, in an email that you may have received about the class. Thank you for coming and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye now. George? Yeah? Um, I haven't seen the, the weekend addiction retreat on the website. Is it, oh. is it up there? Um, I think it is. Would be under the retreat section. I, I looked under classes and retreats and I, I didn't see it. Let me look and see. Um, classes and retreats. Retreats. Meditation and uh, attachment for addiction. Yeah, it's the it's at the top of the page on the classes and retreats tab. Okay. Yeah, I saw the one for June. I just didn't see the one for. Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, it's April twenty fourth and twenty fifth. It's it's there. Um, I, you sometimes you have to refresh your your cache in order for the new pages to come up. Um, okay. Hopefully. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, George. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. George, real quick, what was the second half of the mantra that we did? Um, may you be free of pain and sorrow. May you be well and happy. Well and happy. Okay. Uh, we, we understand that all things are impermanent. So both wellness and happiness and pain and sorrow are impermanent. Nothing, nothing's hard. Yeah, dude. <laughs> You got the no hard feelings. <laughs> nice. <laughs> see you later. Good to see you, John. Megan, I just forwarded you the link for the addiction yeah. retreat. Thank you. No problem. Bye. Bye. Bye.